2: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, to the first of three special editions of the History of England, in fact, Roman Bath, History and Discovery. Now then, gentle listeners, here is a wonderful opportunity, or at least it is for me and I hope it will be for you too. You may or may not be aware that the city of Bath is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and although I hadn't been to Bath since I was nub at knee height to a grasshopper, well 10 probably actually, I was obviously small for my age but also grasshoppers are much bigger back then. Anyway I was lucky enough to be asked to visit by the Roman Bath Museum. Now my grandfather used to describe many things as as daft as a brush and as soon as I arrived I immediately applied this to myself. Why did I leave it so long to come back? If you don't know it well Bath is in a beautiful environment set by the river in a bowl beneath the downs. It has amazing architecture both the beautiful Georgian buildings, but also the Abbey Church is as superb an example of late perpendicular Gothic architecture as you are ever likely to meet. And then of course there's the social phenomenon that was Georgian Bath, along with Jane Austen and then later Charles Dickens and all that. But of course its crowning glory is as one of the finest and best preserved examples of a Roman Bath complex anywhere in the world, the Roman Bath Museum at Bath. With summer approaching and thoughts of outings and trips and holidays in people's minds, the Roman Bath Museum very kindly suggested that we should do a short series of podcasts together. So, I come back to the wonderful opportunity and lucking out bit. I got to go round the museum after hours and to speak to some of the experts who work for the museum or are connected with it. And the result is three episodes based on those interviews. This week, We're going to start with an episode on the history of the town, the joys of the architectural and social phenomenon that was Georgian Bath and the drama of the rediscovery of the Roman Baths and what the museum is like today. And then on the 10th of June, we'll have some interviews about the infrastructure of the Baths, how they worked, what people did there, how they were managed, that sort of thing. And the last episode will be on the 5th of August and will be about worship at the Baths and in the Roman world with a special appearance from Sulis Minerva and some delightful curse scrolls. At the very least, you will find out what crime was sufficiently horrible, heinous and hateful to warrant the following plea to the goddess. The thief responsible should lose their mind and eyes in the goddess's temple. Two things before we go on. Firstly, if you're thinking of visiting Bath, I had not been, as I said, since I was at school, And I spent a couple of days looking around here and I can report that, in my view, it is absolutely all it is cracked up to be. And secondly, to see the Roman baths at their very best, with the great bath in glorious torchlight and away from the crowds of the daytime, you should give the summer torchlit evenings a go. You can find out more at the romanbaths.co.uk website. Do also hop along to thehistoryofengland.co.uk where I put some pictures and links to help you visualise the sort of things we're talking about here. So onward, we're going to start with Luke. Luke is a visitors services assistant who you may already have met if you happen to have seen the Facebook live video, which is still available on the Facebook site, by the way. Luke gave me a quick overview of the history of Bath. You will in this and in the other two episodes actually find that there's some noise at times in the background as the life of the museum carries on around us and we move from place to place so things can sound a bit different in each place. Please bear with me and just imagine me looking at new and exciting things. So I'm with Luke uh, who is a visitor services assistant here at the Roman Bath Museum. Hello
1: Luke. Your job if you care to accept it in the next five minutes is to give a real overview potted history of Bath. Ooh, OK. Well, Bath, as the name very much suggests, uh, really rose and fell on the strength of the visitors to its hot springs. The first record we have of Bath is obviously during the Roman period. The Romans arrived here in AD 75, and then it became a huge site of Roman, largely religious, healing pilgrimage, bringing people from all over the empire. We've got uh, dedications from France, Germany, even skeletons as far away as Syria. Bath is set amongst um, seven hills, rather like Rome, which right. is a nice coincidence. And Sheffield, of course. Yes, of course, but the Romans weren't quite as interested in Sheffield for some reason. The Romans founded this town under the name quite soulless the mm-hmm. waters of Sulis, very much um, getting along the idea that Bath is Irrevocably tied to its hot springs. When the Romans eventually leave in 410 AD, there is a massive gap in the history of Bath. We don't have any more written evidence until the 8th century, in which there is a poem written by one of the monks in the newly founded Christian Bath Abbey. Not the present building, basically just a shed where that now is. There's been about eight buildings on that site. During that time, we have spits and spots of stories in the records. Some monk in the 7th century uh, starts calling Bath Aquaman, which mm-hmm. unfortunately as a name didn't catch on, but right. eventually we went on the Germanic <laughs> Saxon route, Baden, like, like Baden-Baden in Germany, mm-hmm. German for Baths again it's all about the water mm-hmm. but the poem written in the 8th century by one of the monks that lived here is called The Ruin right. he talks about a big mound of rubble which we believe is the remains of the old Roman temple right. with hot water coming in there right. so by that point we believe the Roman remains were simply ruins how they became ruins we have no idea mm-hmm. whether they were destroyed deliberately or eventually just fell in uh, we're not exactly sure uh, but we do know that They were still visible at that Mm. site. However, our next evidence of bar, the 11th century, a map printed here around about 1100 AD for the assassination of King Henry I, it's not visible at all. There are houses shops over the top of here. How it got buried, we have, again, no idea. It's quite embarrassing how many times you right. have to say I don't know. But honestly, <laughs> we think history, we found it all. We honestly have no idea. So by the 11th so century, you think it's all been covered over? All covered over. Right. We originally thought it was the Saxons or the Vikings mm. sacking the site, and there does seem to be some evidence of uh, Viking or Saxon monkey business going on around here. We found a Viking sword in the river a few years mm-hmm. ago, so there right. does seem to be evidence of uh, that kind of conflict. But our best guess is actually the, uh, the Norman Conquest. 10-6, 1st King of England, William the Conqueror, Battle of Hastings and all that. Yeah. Very unpopular king uh, for the simple fact that he was French. Yeah. I mean, you know. No one likes French kings, not even the French. <laughs> so when he eventually dies in 1086, everyone's going to think, oh, yeah. we're going to get an English king this time. Uh, but no, his son becomes king, uh, who is not only French, this time he has red hair as well. Mm. This was just too much. People thought yeah. they were of the devil. Obviously, now we know differently. We do know the people of the town rebelled against the new king, William II, in right. 1086. And during the course of that rebellion, the town was burnt to the ground. Then our next piece mm. of evidence from 1100, the map of Bath showing right. none of the Roman remains remaining. So. Mm. Oh, uh, we've, we've so we think it's William Rufus's fault. We think it's old Rufus Yeah we don't and know maybe How the was, town yeah. got burnt down It may have been right. the rebels mm-hmm. But 1100 AD Bath is taken over By the bishopric The bishop of Bath and Wells William II Gives the bishopric Of Bath and Wells To his father's Old court physician mm-hmm. A man called John de Valula And Good. he builds A gigantic cathedral Which actually dwarfs The current church The current church Would fit inside The nave of that Norman cathedral right, right. And Bath is utterly Dominated by a monastery It's a Benedictine right. monastery That's why it's still Called Bath Abbey Not uh, Bath Church Or Bath Cathedral Cathedrals need bishops And our bishop Has gone off to Wells Which is a huge. Which we literally okay. can't <laughs> get into. And during that time, Bath becomes a, a small wool market on the uh, southern yeah. outskirts of the Cotswolds. If you're familiar with uh, Chaucer's mm-hmm. Canterbury Tales, you've got the wife of Bath. She's yeah. the wife of our wool or cloth merchant. I can't quite remember. But yes, Bath is largely built on the wealth of wool. However, it's not a very nice, it's certainly not as nice as it was today. Right. Bath Abbey was uh, ravaged by the Black Death in 1348. Mm-hmm. And by the 1500s, there was only apparently 40 monks living in the entire structure. Uh, and they had, quote, fallen prey to the libidinous urges. Right, okay. So that's not. So a bit of a party right, town. Yeah. The cathedral was demolished in the 1400s and the current abbey we see today was consecrated in 1499 making it one of the last big churches to be built in this country. In the 1500s Bath still remains as a largely monastic building but after the monastery is eventually destroyed oh uh, by the by, the way people are still using the waters in the spring. The right. Great Bath is covered but the spring is still in oh, use. Okay, right. uh, if, you, if you visit the Roman Baths you mm-hmm. will see an orange stain going above the spring that's because they built a bath on top of there in the 12th century those arches going around from the 11th century. Right. So people are still Still bathing in the water, it's pilgrims and lepers, and it's all very right. religious. Right. Uh, but after the monastery was shut down by Henry VIII in the 1530s, it becomes a bit of a free for all, and we have right. records of men, women, children, cats, dogs, right. cows, people throwing rubbish in there. It was a bit of a mess. Right. In the 1600s, Bath got a bit of a weird reputation of being a place for sort of dirty weekends.
2: Is that right? Uh, yeah, a bit of a, bit of a,
1: not so much Las Vegas as more sort of Atlantic <laughs> City or Blackpool. We had a fun-loving king called Charles II who came to Bath with his wife and enjoyed the entertainment yeah. so much that he came back without his wife. Right. Okay. <laughs> so yeah largely because it was a good place to see people naked right yeah in the 1700s Baths almost inexplicably becomes mm. posh uh, the main reason is because oh, it, yes. uh, a number of queens come and bathe in the spring up there queens that no one has ever really heard of anymore there was a queen called Mary of Modena who was wife of James no. II she had problems conceiving she came and bathed in the water and then miraculously conceived right. her son became the old pretender the yes. Jacobite revolutionary, so we don't talk about him the no. one we tend to talk about is Queen Anne mm-hmm. uh, Queen Anne suffered from gout and dropsy those sort of old timey diseases basically she had bad knees How doctors prescribed to come and bathe in the hot waters of Bath. She came here in 1697, enjoyed it so much she wintered But here between 1702 and 1704. All her court followed her to Bath. They obviously right. took one look at the stinky wooden town with all the sort of slightly gargoyle like people right. leering over and decided to bulldoze 95% of the medieval town and the new Georgian <laughs> town was built. Essentially almost by accident just because this queen had bad knees. Right. Still at this time the Great Bath had not been rediscovered. During the reign of Henry VIII there was a tennis court over the top of here this was part of the monastic buildings. In the 18th century this became part of a estate of the Duke of Kingston and he had a number of baths fed by the spring going over the top of it, again, completely missing this site, and he actually right. had a billiards hall over the top of there later. Uh, the great Bath was only eventually discovered in the 1870s. By then, Bath had long fallen out of fashion. Bath started to fall out of fashion with the madness of King George III when he came to bathe in the springs, particularly at Cheltenham. Those didn't seem to have an effect on his it's obvious bath. He had a 45-minute conversation with a tree once, he believed. Did the he? King of Prussia. OK. So he was sent off to the seaside. Bath fell out of fashion, yep. people went to the seaside instead and um, also because Bath sat in a valley, it got very, very polluted. Bath was pitch black until the 1960s really right. when, uh, a real campaign started by the local council the run was discovered by accident in the 1870s by a man called Major Charles Davis but most of the uh, renovations didn't take place until the 1890s when a number of decorations were placed on top for the Jubilee of Queen Victoria mm-hmm. in expectation that she would arrive she didn't right she did not uh, why well, she, she did not arrive she hated Bath right. she only came to Bath once when she was 11 to open up our park Royal Victoria Park right. and the story goes that someone apparently shouted out look at that girl with the big fat ankles that is rude you've got to say it is rude and 11 is a sensitive age yes. uh, so quite rightly she refused to ever come Back, even 60 years later, when a train was going through the city of Bath, she ordered the blinds shut. <laughs> she didn't want to look at the place. But Bath—that's wa- bearing a grudge, exactly. Yeah, yeah but Bath really came back into its own. In fact, during World War One, when it was used as a heavy centre for R and R for troops coming home from the Western Front, they were bathed in the spring, as a lot of them had suffered joint problems and malnutrition from mm. being in the trenches. It became very popular, and the uh, Raw Mineral wars Hospital, founded in 1745, to treat people using the water, it's still open today. It's the oldest right. hospital still treating patients in the world, and it really came back into use again through treating soldiers that way. And it was used again heavily during World War ii particularly in the run up to the D-Day campaign. The Great Bath was used in the same way by American GIs as it was by Roman centurions and Great Bath was used until 1978 it still remains a major tourist site getting over one million visitors every single year it's one of the very few places in which you can see people doing the same thing for thousands and thousands of years. many Roman sites we have today are largely to do with the aristocracy or the army what really sets the Roman baths apart is that it has so much more of a personal aspect to it it's more sort of day-to-day household items all around the Great Bath we found um, chicken drumsticks and spare ribs and walnuts from Roman takeaways we found pots and pans of roman soldiers we found keys combs small items of jewelry a little bits of wall plaster with the paint still on them and that's the kind of stuff that's really important sort of day-to-day stuff brilliant thank you luke that is fantastic thank you thank
2: you how impressive is that the complete history of bath and if i'd allowed luke to speak at his normal speed he'd have done it in two minutes rather than eight but look apart from the roman baths It's that Georgian period that really fascinates us about Bath, isn't it? All that gambling, all that fantastic, glorious architecture, all the parade of polite society trying to cut a dash. Stand out and get on. So, let's hear more about that. We've moved now from standing outside with the seagulls in the Great Bath into the Roman Baths restaurant next door. Much better protected, but slightly echoey, and a working restaurant, as you might notice from the thumping as people walk up and down the stairs. Anyway. I've now been joined by Tony Crouch, who is the World Heritage Manager here in Bath. Hello Tony. Tony, you're going to tell us about the Georgian period, the heyday of Bath. Before you do, tell me what was here before?
3: The history of Bath is often told in the uh, the context of the big phases of the things that happened, so the Roman history of Bath and then the Georgian. The medieval is often skirted over. The Roman city walls formed the barrier or the extent of the city for a good period, indeed up until around the beginning of the 18th century. So although much had changed in, um, in medieval Bath, of course, it wasn't a big town. It was still a very small town in, um, in southwest England. Um, the Abbey Church had obviously replaced the Roman Temple. The baths had, um, had been lost. It was fairly rich because of the wool industry. Right. Um, but it was not um, a big town and it was the um, same as many other places, the jumbled mix of medieval right. buildings yeah. uh, meeting each other along a, a, a medieval
2: or earlier street path. So, a fairly unremarkable uh, town, I think.
3: Indeed, although it still, of course, had the hot waters. Right. And people were still visiting for the hot waters, but that was almost exclusively for medical uh, purposes. Ah, okay. Right. So, they were coming to seek cures and in the days before formal hospitals and medicines, where else would you go, yes. apart from monasteries or, or spas? So somewhere in the 18th century, things began to change. Mm. Tell me, what, what, what happened? Basically, Bath became fashionable, and it was the right place at the right time. So it was kicked off, really, around 1702 with royal patronage, of Queen Anne visiting, to seek relief from gout. Okay. And um, when the royal court came to town... The focus swung on to Bath and at that time there was emerging middle classes who for the first time had the money and the ability to travel mm. out of the capital in the season, meet like-minded people doing the same. And so the, the season, the spa season was really boring. Had there been any sign of that beforehand? The spa season as it were, is that started here? It, it really starts here. Um, certainly in European examples, it doesn't start till maybe 100 years later. Okay. So that concept um, largely starts with, with Bath, people coming here and staying for um, maybe several months. Right.
2: So that's Queen Anne, we have to thank for that. And how does that begin to develop? When does it be- begin to become significant? When does it affect the town, really, and its fabric? Uh,
3: quite soon, really, because with, with the advent of people visiting in larger and larger numbers, the society then adjusted to cope with that. And so um, Bo Nash comes in as the master of ceremonies and forges the rules of Bath. So that there were set laws of etiquettes that were laid down for people visiting the city. There were rules. That's such a good idea. Can we have that back now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have that in some form now, but it, um, the, the sea change from medieval yeah. to, to Georgian then is one of the remarkable things that happened in Bath. So when do we have that? When, when is that age? Very early mm-hmm. in, the, in the 18th century. Right. So um, Bonash is uh, appointed as Master of Ceremonies in 1705. Mm-hmm. A blagger, really. He came to town without any money or the right. useful means of acquiring mm-hmm. any um, but then went on to really rule um, the polite society in town. Right. So what sort of rules did he set up? There were all sorts of rules about people being announced when they visited the city, uh, about when and what could happen, the formal engagements such as balls, and it even um, went through to dress codes. Right. So rustic behaviour um, was, was out, the wearing of swords <laughs> and things like that right. was, was banned. People turning up to balls in um, high riding boots were ridiculed, right. um, you know, because they were out of social fashion. Right. And, and white stockings and uh, the smaller shoes, you know, came came into fashion. And right. if somebody turned up at a ball in their in their large boots, um, you know, they Bone Ash would chide them and say, "Have you come on your horse?" <laughs> you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a means right. of, um, of really calling to attention the fact that they were not Alamo.
2: mode. Right. So naming and shaming was the Even fashion. Naming
3: and shaming and. Right. Uh, and this was happening in a context where, uh, you know, b- before you had very muddy, dirty streets, um, you know, foul behaviour taking place, and that was driven out because um, Bath was one of the first tourist resorts, okay. uh, and needed to become a polite
2: place to cater for the the gentry who were visiting. So this is quite a conscious policy by Bath to pull people in, is it? Are they conscious investing, policy,
3: in indeed, by Bath and by the corporation. At the time later in the century, we see things like the um, town planning when Bath Street was thrown through um, between the cross-bath and the main baths yeah. as a deliberate means of taking people through on England's only double colonnaded street. They could visit the two baths without going out into the open air. Right. Okay. So there was um, a, a deliberate ploy by the corporation and... Um, and by society hmm. to
2: cater for these richer visitors. So when you say the t- corporation, you mean the corporation of the town, as it were? The corporation of the town, a yeah. forerunner of the council. Okay. And that's a private concern in mm-hmm. centre, or is that a public concern? No, it's a
3: public concern. It's yeah. a public concern, and, it, and indeed um, a significant one, because since the dissolution of the monasteries, much of the land in Bath has been given to the corporation. Right. Right? Um, and land that was taken from the abbey, so they are uh, a rich and um, right. quite influential body. What other things did they well, build? The, the city was laid out in a, um, a brand-new architectural fashion. Right. So mm. neoclassical architecture was coming to the fore in um, England as a whole, but in Bath it was taken to a new level. Mm. So it, we have the complete Georgian city, and that is everything from the mm. wide, flat pavements... Through to bridges, um, to, to houses for ordinary people, these monumental ensembles of um, houses where you make uh, a small terrace look like a country house, right. the layouts of squares and things like that. It was taken, it was applied across the whole of society, even churches and things were built in that fashion. So, a very fashionable way to build, but again, with some quite strict rules. Palladian architecture was the thing, so that's even a small offshoot really of. Um, yeah. neoclassical architecture. And if you'd built anything in Baroque style or flamboyant style, again, mm. that was considered
2: flashy, showy. And, Is that not know, acceptable? Uh, not acceptable, no.
3: There are a couple of Baroque buildings surviving in, in Bath, but very few. It right. seemed to be a little too showy for English
2: refined taste. Cool. So you know, how big was this a part of English social life in its heyday?
3: It, it became a huge part. You know, When we talk again about Bath being... A comparatively small town, it was punching well above its weight, mm. just because of the number of people who came here, uh, not only the kings and queens who came, but of course all of the, the court that would follow them, and then the artists and the, the poets and the play, playwrights and mm. others who were there um, following their patrons, were coming to Bath, and so significant social advances were made here, right. not only in um, terms of architecture and things, but In the theatres, for example, women um, would often make their stage debut in Bath because it was an easier place for an entree rather than the harsh critics of London. And ladies were allowed in coffee shops in Bath, whereas they weren't in London so there was a sort of a liberal um, aspect to the okay. city and because of that you've got this infusion of ideas with all these famous people meeting each other mm. um, scientists and the rest during an age of enlightenment so really exciting times okay. to be in bath
2: well any particular famous people that came here jane austen
3: mm. springs to mind Jane Austen, of course um was here on on um, many occasions but in terms of artists we had likes of gainsborough mm-hmm. here um scientist herschel in mm. discovering the planets um, so so they were just a few amongst many people yeah. who, would, who would visit Bath either for short periods of time or make this their home.
2: Were people genuinely coming on holiday or was if you're going to launch yourself on society's Bath where you start to do it or is it that too calculating a suggestion? No I think
3: it's a bit of both. Most people were coming for the season mm-hmm. so they were coming for short stretches of time maybe a couple of months. Okay. Um, I mean, Jane Austen is a good example okay. because she stayed in lodgings in many many places huh in the town and would write about whether she liked them or not or the advantages of one or okay. the other uh, because she stayed in so many different places. <laughs> it makes our life quite difficult when we try to put commemorative plaques right. because uh,
2: <laughs> Jane Austen's It's still all over the place. Here there or so you're in, you in the habit now of putting up plaques saying Jane Austen did not stay here. Yeah, Jane Austen did yeah. not. Yeah. Charles Dickens yeah. did not. <laughs> Where would you go in your private moments? The bits you think, absolutely, this is what... This really sums up Bath.
3: I think it has depth of quality that um, many other cities don't have. So one of the things that the Georgians did, they were vandals in their own right. They sort of um, blitzed away the city walls and there were no respecters of buildings that were here before them. Um, But the, the quality of Bath extends to the suburbs as well. So in many places you would have a walled city and inside the walls you'd have a nicely preserved historic town and outside you'd have your... B&Qs and mm. supermarkets and the rest of it. Uh, Bath doesn't have that. Bath has that depth of quality that runs from the city directly up to the outstanding countryside that it butts. Yeah. So um, I'm particularly fond of the suburbs such as Winkham, Whit- uh, Lincoln, Lansdowne and places mm. where you can find fine villas and
2: all the street furnishings and things you get with them in quite obscure areas of town. Mm. Yes, we were remarking the same thing, that the scarp that goes around the south side of the Tyre above the river is just stunning, isn't it? It's, the situation of Bath is absolutely part
3: of its glory. Very much so, and Bath plays on its natural advantages. The setting is glorious, so it's set within this bowl or river valley of, of hills, and um, almost anywhere that you are within the city, you can see the green hills beyond. Right. but it makes you feel like you 're in a very small market town, mm. whereas in fact um, the population is now nearly ninety thousand people yeah. um, and it also has natural advantages of course in the building stone, mm. the local lytic limestone was used for nearly all of the buildings and so it has that visual cohesion that many other towns
2: don't have. And tell us some of the stories from Bath that you particularly like. Yeah,
3: I I like the Cornish pastor story because he was a a humble visitor but he'd written back to his sister in Cornwall to say that she wouldn't believe it but he could walk
2: outside the front door in the same shoes that he wore in the house. (laughs) Fantastic story. So one of the other things that impressed me particularly was the use of the open spaces as well. A lot of parks, were they there for a particular reason?
3: Yes, uh, again, for the diversions or the entertainment of visitors, um, we're now referring to them as a sort of therapeutic landscape that surrounds Bath, because part of the cure when you came to the city was not only taking of the waters, it was this being close to nature and the fact that these green fingers of land extend right into the city centre, Mm. so it's possible to to walk um, on the hills, along the canal, along the river, um, and through the parks, and Uh, Jane Austen certainly did that other people would have taken rides and carriage rides out and it would have been very much part of your visit to Bath.
2: One last thing that we went to, of course as everybody does to the Royal Crescent, uh, a lovely park there in front of those gorgeous houses presumably showing yourself off in the park was as much about the season as it going to the assembly rooms or wherever it might be
3: Very much so, but also one of the things that the Royal Crescent is really important for is almost for the first time this birth of the picturesque movement in architecture, the land in front and the open countryside was as important as the building right. itself. So, a hundred years before in the Palace of Versailles, you would have got formal, tamed gardens in front of mm. geometrical yeah. squares and little hedges. Yeah. But here, you get open countryside with a ha ha ditch and grazing animals meeting these fine buildings. Right. So, it's nature and buildings in balance, and for the first time, you get this sort of
2: picturesque movement right. coming through. Brilliant. Well, it's an absolutely fantastic place. What happened? Does the does the heyday pass, and if so, why? And what? Tell me about that.
3: The heyday passes. Um, it did last for 100 years, so it was a bright burn right. whilst it was um, aflame. But um, towards the end of the 18th century, fashion has changed, and you get things like the Brighton Pavilion and the mm-hmm. court moving to the seaside. Right. So mass tourism, which really can be said to have started in, in Bath, um, then moves to, and we know it now, to sort of seaside resorts. Bath becomes a genteel place for half pay army officers and retired right. clergy, right. Uh, becomes very quiet. Mm. Um, but in some ways, that helped it because you get this conservation by neglect, mm. uh, benign decay, and so that fabulous explosion of wealth and popularity in the 18th century is left during the, the later years, and so we have that remarkable survival that we've got today. Mm. And one more thing, tell me about Pulteney Bridge. Are there many other bridges like that in the world? Really no, there are Indeed, unique. inhabited bridges, they are very few and far between in the world. And when Pulteney Bridge was, um, was put up, it was deemed to be quite old-fashioned in having buildings upon it. Right. Um, most of the buildings at the time, going up the neoclassical ones, were clean, um, straight across bridges without buildings. And uh, there's s- several reasons for that, not least because... Um, when it was put up, of course, the rents that were gained from the shops were financially beneficial. Mm. Um, but also it was modelled very much on a Palladian style, so the Ponte Vecchio and Florence yeah. and things like that. we still um, looking for inspiration in places like
2: that. Yeah. Fantastic. Like I go I can literally go all day asking questions, but I won't do that because you've got work to do. Thank you very much. You're, You're very welcome. You. If you've not been to Bath, i put a picture and short video that I found on YouTube of the super famous Royal Crescent, So if you want to visualise the Crescent and the Circus, actually hop along to the History of England website. I was then fortunate enough to spend some time with our last interview of the day, which is Stephen Clues. Stephen is the manager of the Roman Bath Museum, otherwise known as the boss, or font of all knowledge, depending, of course, on who you are and what situation you happen to be in at the time. And we talked about the excitement of Bath's discovery and development, plus a personal recommendation from him. I started off the conversation by remarking to Stephen that one of the things that had particularly amazed me when I came to Bath this time was to find out that the Georgians about how we talk about so much had no idea that the Roman Bath itself was actually there.
4: Well, that's true. If we think of you know, famous visitors to Bath in the 18th century, both Jane Austen is perhaps the best known, she would have been probably largely unaware of the existence of the Roman Bath site. If we go back to the early part of the 18th century, in 1727, a discovery is made of the gilt bronze head of the goddess Sulis Minerva.
2: Ah, so she was the first thing to come to life? She was, yes.
4: Uh, There were some inscriptions in the town wall. Uh, But really that was all that people knew
2: about. Did they not know that there was a complex there somewhere buried under the ground even?
4: There were some inscribed stones Mm. and some decorated stones which had been built into the town wall. So, to an educated person, you realize there must have been
2: something, something there. here, but, but
4: apart from knowing there was something here, yeah. you probably didn't really have much of an idea right. indeed, when Monumenta Britannica was uh, written at the end of the seventeenth century, there are about five lines devoted to Bath. Yeah. The head was discovered, and it was a spectacular discovery. Mm. Even now, when the three golden statues survive from Britain. There's an arm from London, and there's a part of a leg from Milsington <laughs> on the Antonine Wall.
2: Arms and legs are much less interesting than yeah. heads anyway. Yes, yeah, a so
4: head is a far more, interesting, yeah, thing more to interesting to find. So we have the head, but then it isn't until the 1750s that in a completely different place, 150 metres from there... That some excavations are taking place and some Roman ruins are encountered and uncovered it was because of the eastern range of the Roman bathhouse. Although at that point they didn't realise there was uh, a larger bathhouse yeah. to the west. And so that's in the mid-1750s. And then the next thing that happens that's significant is at the end of the 18th century, by which time Bath is becoming ever more popular. And the pump room that was uh, built at the beginning of the 18th century isn't big enough. And so they embark on a grand scheme to redevelop the pump room and actually to remodel quite a significant part of central Bath. The excavation of foundations reveals more remains. Mm they recover stones from the pediment of the temple. So it's becoming obvious from that what this place is. Well, that that is our third separate significant find. Mm. But in their mind's eye, people are still not joining all these dots up. Mm. Because if you look at it on a map, the distance between the bars that have been uncovered and the head and the temple remains is still quite significant. So during the 19th century, more discoveries are made. And gradually, a few small... Small sightings of what is part of the Bath House are made, but even then its scale is not appreciated, mm-hmm. and it isn't really until the later 19th century that. The true scale and significance of the bars is revealed. Right. So how does that happen? What happens is that some buildings are quite close mm. to the spring. Have problems with water penetrating their basement. Okay. So the civil <coughs> engineer mm. investigates, and at depth in the passage beside the spring, he encounters lead. He puts two and two together, and he realizes that this lead could be the lining of a bar. Right. And but it's this point
2: that... The penny drops into yes, the it does spring bring it, of Aquinas. Yes, a
4: so big one or two other small yeah. sightings, but that's when the penny drops. So a few years later, he begins a campaign of excavation. But well, this is all tied into the spa and rethinking okay. about redeveloping the spa and uh, new ex- and uh, the result is that over a period of time the site is gradually cleared mm. to call it an excavation right um mm. conjures up uh, yes uh, uh, a modern vision of uh, organized structured activity yeah. it probably wasn't quite like that yeah some of the buildings could not be removed immediately indeed there's one wonderful image oh, yes, that shows that? Uh, a building standing in the Great Path. No wonder it had water penetrating its <laughs> basement.
2: Yes, so of course there was stuff there. They were having to knock down buildings in order yes. to do the excavations. It included
4: the Poor Law Union offices, which took okay. quite a few years to I get permission you, to yeah. clear those. Indeed. So how long did the whole process take? It took from about 1879 through to about 1885-6 okay. to clear the main site.
2: And was it then open to the public? Well, I you could see it. You just looked over, right, over the fence. You looked was. over a paling fence right. into
4: this hole. Yeah. So that was the state it was in. But behind this, they were also driving the development of a new spa. And uh, over part of the Roman site, they rebuilt a spa. And this proved to be economically successful. And revived a spa, brought in many uh, interesting and exotic treatments from the continent. The Berthollet Vapor Bath, the Ex-Douche,
2: the Vichy Massage. Because these all sound fascinating. Yes,
4: they're all very exotic sounding names.
2: Yeah, they are very exotic, but we're not going to demonstrate it now.
4: The spa was redeveloped with a continental flavour. So with the redevelopment of the spa and the uncovering of the Roman baths, the position was that there was a thriving spa on one corner of the site, and next to it, these wonderful exposed Roman remains. The story of their discovery had caught the public imagination, both locally and also Mm. further afield. What the council now wanted to do was further embellish the spa. To do this, it had these Roman remains. It wanted to take advantage of it. In developing the spa, it extended the pump room and created a new concert hall next to it on the model of Continental Spa. It uh, had an orchestra. If you look at the people playing in it, there were literally musicians who came over from the continent. And there was a competition for the pump room extension, as it was known, and this would incorporate the display of the Roman remains. Major Davis, who carried out the excavations and uh, was the incumbent architect for the city, put in his own submission, together with that of competitors. The judging panel selected a particular scheme, and uh, the way it was identified was that there were envelopes for each one. And if you open the envelope, you saw the name of the submitting architect. They opened an envelope, and there was nothing in it.
2: Ah, that's unfortunate. (laughs) So Major Davis said, I forgot to put it in, that's mine. That's That's exactly what happened.
4: (laughs) He had failed to put his card in the envelope. but nevertheless uh, Major Davis wasn't altogether popular and this seems to have been sufficient to turn the opinion of some councillors so the scheme in the end did not go ahead on that basis another architect was appointed
2: so Bath was a popular location still in Victorian times Is that right? Yes,
4: it was. And uh, the new spa, benefiting from all these new treatments, did thrive.
2: Right. And so Um, the Victorians are bathing? They're not
4: not, uh, bathing in the Roman baths. They're using the spa facilities. Although it was possible to bathe in the spring. uh, Oh, was it? Which at the time had been redeveloped as a bath in medieval times. Yeah. And you could still bathe in that. And that that carried on until... um, after the second, well, until Mm. the time of the Second World War.
2: And what were the waters supposed to do for you? Uh,
4: Well, there are all sorts of curative powers that have been Mm. attributed to the waters over time. In fact, almost any complaint you can think of is is probably on the list at some
2: point. Particularly
4: good for the palsy and the gout and um, complaints of the skin and the kidneys. And, you know, I could go on.
2: um, So one of my listeners (laughs) actually wrote in and said, look, you can still drink the water, you can buy some of the water and you can drink it. Is that Mm. still true? Yes,
4: you can drink it um, for free actually you can drink it uh, right? in the Roman bars there's a fountain there there's okay. uh, also a fountain in the pump room is it nice it's very acceptable
2: okay as spa
4: waters go you need to be in the diplomatic if you've been days. to Vichy if you've been yeah. to Cheltenham you're given spa water in tiny doses right a few millimeters okay. in a glass and when you taste it you understand why, why? <laughs> But here in you bar, go, as much as it, you it like.
2: Yes, yeah. here you know. we give it in half pint. Okay. Oh, bar, fantastic. So, Carrying uh, a fine no, it's clearly drinkable. Yeah, excellent. Okay, <clears throat> I'm convinced. Tell me some, something briefly about how the museum developed into what we have today.
4: Well, the council never decided to have a museum. Oh, OK. Right. If you look at the council minutes in the 1890s, one sees that uh, Major Davis is, at one point, asked to arrange a few objects, um, which he does in the basement beneath the grand new reception hall. Mm. And then, a little while later, you see that people start referring to the museum. Mm. And so it's something that's happened. Right. But nowhere does there seem to be a minute saying, we shall have a museum.
2: Right. So it sort of grows up by accident? It just almost. sort of grows yeah. and
4: becomes present. Uh, so we take the official date for its foundation mm-hmm. as being 1897 when the Roman remains open to the public. Right. The museum, and indeed the site, has expanded since then the bits that you can see. It's now possible to see the eastern range of the baths. It's possible to see the temple precinct beneath the pump room. We're currently engaged in a project project that will expand the area you can see on the south side of the site, going underneath nice. adjacent streets.
2: So how much of the complex has been excavated?
4: Well, roughly about 4,000 square metres. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's quite rough. And it's be um, much more precise. sort of um, percentage of the whole site?
4: There's about half of the precinct still to excavate. Okay. There's a small peripheral area to the baths mm. that is still to okay.
2: uncover. So we haven't got to the end of what... Uh, No, no.
4: Excavations are ongoing. There have been some excavations in the last few months, rather unexpectedly. We found the oldest coin yet known from Bath. It dates to 85 BC, and it's 128 years before the Roman invasion of Britain. And I think what has happened is that, in common with another number of other Roman republican coins that are found in Britain, It's found its way in later transfers of
2: cash. Ah, I see, right.
4: I think after the invasion, there are still these coins circulating. Mm. The army was paid in cash, so they brought cash over to pay them, and I think this was probably
2: amongst those. Okay, brilliant. And tell me a little bit about the museum today. Um,
4: The museum has lots of visitors, Mm. and so quite a lot of the people here are devoted to providing services to those visitors. Uh, selling tickets, guiding tours, all this sort of thing. And you have some Um, reenactors. We also have costumed interpreters, yes. Are they quite They won't speak to you in Latin, so they're not too frightening. (laughs) They're very skilled in engaging people in conversation. Some people are a little reticent about (laughs) engaging with uh, someone who looks like a Roman. Okay,
2: fantastic. But
4: I think they will find these people quite
2: approachable. Do you find that everybody who comes here tries to get them to break out of character? Or is that um, not what everybody does?
4: Uh, many people see that as a challenge. Right, OK. Isn't? and uh, But they are very skilled and very proficient right. in dealing with that. They don't do no, that. No, funnily they enough, s- they've thought about that question I before. bet they have. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Apart from that, we also have um, many of the traditional roles of a museum. Mm. We have collections to look after. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we have the site to manage. The site to manage means we work with conservators. Mm. Looking after the collections, we have curatorial mm. staff... But We have a collections manager and an assistant. Uh, Research takes place on this site, both into the water and the springs and the geology of the site. It has a unique flora and fauna within the hot springs. Mm. They are the only ones in Britain. We also uh, conduct research into the site and the collections. Uh, It takes a little while to get your eye into the site. uh, we do help people with that by using projections yeah, and uh, actually, computer yeah. animation, CGI, uh, in which you can see before you the remains reconstructed mm. as to look as they would have done in Roman times. Yes. Archaeologists traditionally look down at the floor,
2: right. and a lot
4: of the time yes. they're looking at foundations and trying to work things out. Having this technology means we can actually let our eyes rise up, yes. and we can see the buildings... And it also means archaeologists have to work harder because they have to translate those foundations into what the superstructures of those buildings would have looked like.
2: It's got to say, it works really well, and I I loved also the way that you've used that same technology to show what the people would have been doing at particular points within the bath.
4: Once you create virtual space in uh, animations like Mm. that, you then have to turn it into social space. Mm. And that means people have to be present and doing the things that they would have done. Yeah. And uh, without that, you just have buildings. Yes, yeah, so you just um, have flat um, stones. Yeah. But the real interest in the Roman bars mm. is the
2: insight it gives Absolutely. into the living world of the past. Yes. Are there any particular finds that particularly exciting or interesting?
4: One was found rather a long time ago in the 18th century. It's a large head of a female. It has a wonderful hairstyle. The height of fashion under the Emperor Domitian, towards the end of the 1st century AD. We call
2: it the Flavian head, after yeah. the Flavian Empress. And uh, that's in the museum, is it? That is in the museum. Oh, so. Interesting, so there's one particular point of time where this hairstyle is popular, and yeah. no other time, and it's in yeah, the time it's, of Domitian. it's about 20
4: or 30 years. Fascinating. Is it a mullet?
2: It's not a mullet. Uh, no, no. So no when it's, people dig up the 70s. Uh, it, would, re- it would out.
4: require assistance. It consists of a mass of curls right. mounted high on the head. Okay. It probably involved uh, additional hair pieces.
2: Okay, fascinating. Yeah. So we can see the hairstyle in the museum. Yes. And then tell me a little bit about the torchlit evenings. In the summer
4: months, this year from my 16th of June through until the 31st of August, we're open every evening until 10pm, uh, with last admission at 9pm. You can come along, you can enjoy the baths in a quiet ambiance as the uh, sun goes down, and it's really a very beautiful time to come. The torches are lit, there's a flickering glow as uh, light falls on the water. It's actually quite a romantic setting and indeed uh, many people have proposed here and is that right we even have marriages so we can cater for just about everything you can right, think fantastic. of
2: fantastic well look um i hope romance will flourish yes indeed uh, Stephen. over the summer <laughs> sounds fantastic looks absolutely gorgeous great thank, thank, you. thank you well folks i hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as i did making it meanwhile thanks to all of you for listening thanks to everyone at the roman bath museum at bath especially rebecca who did all the work really Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.